If you have your Bibles, we're ready for Exodus 23 tonight. So as you guys know, we've been um, going through Exodus chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We stopped and we paused and we did the first four um, um, commandments. And then we went from there to uh, back to chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Last week, we got into the law. And so the law is given. It starts in Exodus 20 with the Ten Commandments. That's the beginning of the giving of the law. Now, you have to understand that we are, um, just in a nutshell, if we have 4,000 years of Old Testament history from Adam to, um, to Jesus... We're, we're more than halfway through that, that period by the time we get to Exodus 20. Matter of fact, by the time you get to Genesis 20 and Abraham, you've reached the halfway point of the Old Testament. So the law wasn't given for, for 2,000 years of human history from Adam until Moses. But at this point, God's people, um, which started with Abraham, right? And, and just a small family. When they, when they grew, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob had 10 sons, or 12 sons, which are the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jacob and his family went down into Egypt and followed Joseph to Egypt, where Joseph preserved. How many went down into Egypt? Do you guys remember? No? Nope. 75, you're right. I was going to say 70, but then we get the other five that Joseph and his family are counted, because they were already there. 70 went down. 70 went down, and there was five that were already there, which make the 75. They came out a a, a multitude of people. Millions, two million, conservatively, two million people. They were slaves from their conception, and and, and really in a different culture. And as God gives the law, one of the things I want us to understand, because we we got last week in the study, we got to that point where in the law, God says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And, 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 the, and today, one of the things of the critics, and if you have an atheist friend, they always want to point out these, these parts of the law where God lays out certain things. Number one, God's dealing with a culture of 75 people that grew to 2 million in slavery in Egypt. So they weren't educated people. They were um, embraced and, and, and encircled with pagan, pagan worship and pagan culture. And God is beginning with this people. And, and the commandments, the thing I want you to remember about the commandments is that the commandments were, they were meant to be restrictive, not permissive. They were meant to be limitations. When God said an eye for an eye, what he basically was telling the people is that you can't, if they poke out one of your eyes, you can't poke out two of theirs and, and a couple of their kids and their, and their neighbors because for justice. If they poke out one of yours, it's a limitation. You only get one of theirs. If they knock out one of your teeth, you don't go and knock out their whole set tops and bottoms. You get one tooth back for the one that they knocked out. And they were restrictive. They were limited because of human nature and culture and where they were. And so um, we, we get that as we go through. It brings us here where we are in uh, chapter 23. Now, again, this is the, the, the beginning part of God laying out the law of Moses. So in the first part of 23, we're going to get the judicial laws. And so God cares about justice and judicial laws. And again, he's laying out these things. Now, one of the things I want you to kind of keep in your, in your reference as, as you go through biblical history, starting from Adam and we get to Abraham, and now here we are at Moses and the giving of the law. As we move from this group of people that this law, not that it wasn't good for all of, out, all of throughout, but it was very specific to that group. And, and as we go on, we get to David. And David takes the law of Moses, which was interpreted into... Don't let Lydia answer this question. One of you guys beat her to it. How many laws, codified laws in law of Moses? 613. 
Okay, the Ten Commandments, but the the Jews had taken and codified the law of Moses and they basically came up with 613 different commandments, like 400 or 350 that were negative and the rest positive. And so um, in that, and then you get to King David and King David in the Psalms, he brings it to 11 precepts. And then you get on and you get to the minor prophets and, and, and one comes down and he brings it Isaiah to six. And then you get to Amos and he brings it down to two. And then we get to Jesus in the new Testament. And Jesus said, all of the law and the prophets are summed up in one word. What is it? Ah, love one another. Jesus said, all of the law and the prophets are summed up in this one word, love, love one another. And when they said, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus said, love the Lord, your God with all your heart, mind and soul and love your neighbor as yourself. And so if you love the Lord with all your heart, mind and soul, are you going to steal? Are you going to murder? Are you going to commit adultery? Are you going to covet? And when your desire is to do that, it covers all 613. So really what we see is that, um, you know, this, this big codified law it, you know, it, 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 it was necessary for the people in the time and, and it served a purpose. Paul tells us it was a schoolmaster showing us that we needed a savior, but really God's heart. And the thing was to, to understand is that in some of these laws, again, God is dealing with, with a certain society and group of people that needed that. And then as time goes on and God begins to, to be with the people and his people and train them and teach them and grow, that's why when you get to David, he's able to bring it down to 11 and say, hey, these are 11 really important precepts for our people when David was king. And then when you get to Amos and to the minor prophets and, and they bring it down to six and then two um, because the people were maturing. They were growing just like you and I do. So let's look at chapter 23. It says, you shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be under, un, to be unrighteous witness, to be an unrighteous witness. And so that's pretty straightforward, right? Just about being honest. Don't circulate a false report. So don't gossip. Don't when somebody calls you with a false report or a bad report. You know, he doesn't want you to circulate that. It should die with you. Whether it's true or not, this is talking about a false report. But even if it's a true report that's negative or bad, then we, we don't want to, you know, pass that on. You know what happens in Christian circles so many times? It's like, you know, somebody calls you like, oh, Sally, uh, we need to pray for, for Mary. Did you hear what's going on with her? Let me tell you all about it. And, and the guys that were, were, were praying for her, yeah, all right, we're gossiping. And, you know, gossip stops, it can stop with you, and it takes two to gossip. You know, I, I knew a guy, and he, he knew everything about everybody. And I, and I, you know, I'm a pastor, I'm the assistant pastor at a big church, and this guy's in the church, but he knows everything about everybody. I don't know anything about all these people and these rumors and all this stuff going on. I'm like, how does he know everything about everybody? And I don't know. I don't know. If I want to know what's going on, I got to go talk to him. But he, he, he was in a position where people were comfortable talking bad about everybody else and gossiping and telling him all this stuff. And they weren't comfortable coming to me and telling me those same things because I would shut it down. I wouldn't entertain it. They, they weren't going to talk that same way to me just because I wouldn't allow it. I would tell them, did you talk to that person? Go, go tell that to Pastor Gerald. Go bring that to whoever. Go, and I always put it back and stop it, and I don't want to entertain it. And if I'm not entertaining it, then it's going to die there. In verse 2, he says, You shall not follow a crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. I love how it says you shouldn't follow a crowd. You know, one of the things that Jesus said as, as Christians is that we, um, we are in this world but not of this world. We are a new creation in Christ. I love the analogy of us as Christians that um, any dead fish can float downstream, right? 
put a dead fish in the water and he can float with the rest of the crowd downstream, but it takes a live, well, healthy fish to swim upstream. And that's what we're doing as Christians sometimes. So we don't want to follow the crowd, not what's popular as Paul or as Peter and John proclaimed. You, as for you, you, you do what's right. You do what you decide to do for yourself. But as for me, we, we will do what pleases God. We will do what, what the Lord wants us to do in our lives. In verse three, you shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. That's an interesting one. You would think that, you know, he, he says here, just because the guy's poor, don't show him partiality. You would think it would be quite the opposite if God is interested in, but God is interested in justice no matter how, no matter which side of it's on. He says, it doesn't matter if the guy's poor, just because he's poor, don't pervert justice. Well, they're, you know, Walmart's got billions of dollars and he slipped on aisle four. Well, no, he poured something down and jumped in it and hurt his back and now he's suing him. But, you know, it's, it doesn't matter if, because they've got millions and he's got nothing that he should automatically win. God's interested in justice. And he said, don't show partiality just because um, the man is poor. In verse 4, it says, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one who hates, your lo- hates you lying under its burden and you would refrain from helping it, you should surely help him with it. So the next time your neighbor's donkey is stuck in a trench or a ditch or something, and you see it, and rather than riding by and going, ha, 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 taking a picture of it and putting it on Facebook, um, stop. Now, we don't have donkeys, right? We probably don't have in our culture neighbor's donkeys, but who knows, maybe your your neighbor's Ford F-150 has now got the parking brake on it, and so you you know, you know see it rolling down the trench, and you gotta, you got to go jump in it and give it a break. Stuck in the snow. But, but again, it's, it's the same heart, right, that Jesus shared as he elaborated in the New Testament with the, um, the Beatitudes and the things. And then as Christian people that he, he wants us to, to love our enemies. He wants us to, even though it's an enemy, that we're to do righteous. And that in that we'll bridge gaps. In that we'll, you know, we'll, um, we, we, we will be the bigger person. And, and you never know where you're going to soften somebody's heart. Somebody who's just an enemy and mean and, and maybe an act of kindness. And according to the law, God wants us to be kind. It was like the, that I tell you the story about the pastor and his deacon who went hunting. And they drove like three miles out or, or three hours to this hunting area. And they got there and it was all posted, no hunting. And so they were, they were really, you know, bummed out and wanted to hunt. And so the pastor told the deacon, he said, well, there's a farm right over there and you know, maybe that farmer would give us permission to hunt on his land. And Deacon said, oh, pastor, he said, no. He said, that, that farm is owned by old farmer Joe. He's the meanest old coot you ever met in your life. He's nasty. There's no way he'll ever let us. He's such an enemy. He'll never let us hunt on his land. So the pastor said, well, we drove all the way out here. What could it hurt to go knock on his door? So the pastor goes up and he knocks on his door. And old farmer, mean old coot comes out and he rips the door open and he just lights up like the 4th of July and he gets all excited and he says, honey, honey, Pastor Mark is here. What are you doing here? He said, I listen to you on the radio every day. And he said, oh, well, me and my deacon, we, we drove all the way out and we, we wanted to hunt and it was, it's all posted, no hunting. And we we're wondering if we could hunt on your land. And he said, oh, pastor, it would be a pleasure to have you hunt on my land. And he said, pastor, he said, can I talk to you for a minute? He said, um, he said, I have an old, an old, an old horse. And he said, I went out yesterday to shoot that horse. And he said, I've had that horse for 20 years. And he said, I just, I couldn't bring myself to shooting that horse. He said, will, will you go out? And he said, when you're hunting, will, will you put that horse needs to be put down? Will you put that horse down for me? I just couldn't do it. 
So the pastor said, okay, I'll, I'll take care of that for you. And so the pastor turned around, and he, he decided he was going to play a joke on the deacon. And he said, you're right. That's the meanest old farmer I ever met in my life. He's rotten. And he grabs the pistol out of the back window of the truck, and he walks over, and he just shoots that horse. And next thing you know, he hears, boom, boom, boom. And he turns around, and his deacon's going, hurry up, pastor. I just got two of his cows. <laughs> Let's get out of here. <laughs> yeah, no. We should go on. Verse number four, if you find your enemy's ox or your donkey, don't shoot it. Help him out. Verse five, if you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under the burden, help it. Surely help him with it. Verse six, you shall not pervert the judgment of your poor in his dispute. Same thing we already talked about. Keep yourself far from false, from a false matter. Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not justify the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the discerning and perverts the words of the righteous. And so God's dealing with in judicial law that, that you're not to take a bribe. And, and even if the bribe wasn't intended to sway your decision, he says don't take it because if the guy drops off a, a new Corvette in your driveway and then you have to make a decision concerning him, it's going to pervert your justice. It's going to pervert what the decision you're making. He wants you to take no bribes. He doesn't want you to um, start a foundation and receive um, donations from Saudi Arabia and all over these other countries all over the world by the millions and millions of dollars. Like that's not going to influence the decisions that you make when uh, your foundation has millions and millions of dollars donated from foreign governments that you make decisions concerning. It's crooked. We've seen enough and we've spoken. We're tired of the corruption. And so God says he warns that, that, that we shouldn't do that. And he says, also, you shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger, because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Hey, I missed one. There, there's one. Um, he, he talks about both in the judicial law. Don't, don't show partiality to somebody just because he's poor. He also says he doesn't want us to show partiality um, or in taking a bribe, I guess that one would fit, to somebody who's rich. And so what we get here is we just get the fact that God wants justice regardless this that picture have you guys ever seen the, the picture of justice what is it you may know what it is yeah it's that lady with the scales but what does she have over her eyes has a blindfold and that's where that comes from that justice is blind and it doesn't it doesn't make a decision based on color race amount of money you have don't have on all those things it looks at the facts and it makes a just judgment that's blind and and that's what that's that comes from that picture that 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 Blind justice comes from this concept from the, the law of Moses that justice is blind. And it, and it doesn't take into those, those things into consideration that it's just honest. In the verse 10, it says, Six years you shall sow your land and gather its produce. But in the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. In like manner you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. You know, God, God's, God was so smart, obviously, right? He's God. But, you know, e- even in what he set up, it, it just made so much sense. And it would be so practical and so, such common sense. And, and then the things that he put in for his people as, as rests and as breaks. And so here we have this, this concept that was introduced once already and, and is, is now in the law that, that six years that, that you're to work and on the seventh year you're to rest. How, how sweet would that be? Get a whole year off every seven years. Talk about vacation. Now they worked a true six day week. They worked six. They took the seventh day off and you work six days a week for six years. And then, and then in the seventh year, you took the entire year off and the land was supposed to rest. 
And then, and then he says in there that, that, that the, the animals and the, and the people could go and could glean the fields. And he had a welfare program, but people had to. They couldn't sit on their couch and play Xbox and wait for the check to come in. And then borrow money because it's the 28th and they haven't got their payment yet. And so he, he set it up that they, there was a welfare program, but they still had to work for it. They still had to go out to the fields themselves and they could glean the fields and they could work. And, and, and when you pass through the, the fields and you, you glean the fields, you couldn't go back through a second time. You left it and that was the welfare program. And then the, the, the needy and the people that needed help could come through. And the same thing with the animals. He says when the animals come through, they could, they could eat whatever they want. The Bible says don't muzzle the ox when it treads the field. It's in two different places. It's in the New Testament too as an analogy and practically a real commandment in the Old Testament that the ox was allowed to eat whatever he wanted as he plowed and, and as he went through the fields. And then we know just um, scientifically and agriculturally that um, the, the land, you, you have a year of fallow and you let the land rest. And if you, if you let the land rest for a year every seven years, it, it, the land will heal itself. The, the soil will heal itself. It'll produce better. And then not only that, God miraculously through Israel's history, in that sixth year, he gave them a bumper crop so that they could survive that seventh year without planting. And so, you know, even uh, Pastor Gerald Lydia's dad was, was a farmer in central Kansas, grew up a farm, on a farm, and his, they, they, they farmed a couple sections. And um, they, that's the way his dad, so it would be Lydia's grandpa, that's the way they would farm. They would have a piece or a section, and this year they weren't going to farm or touch that piece. It was just going to sit, and they would farm everything else. And then he would rotate that, that piece of ground because it was, it was agriculturally the right thing to do. And, and God laid that out in the Old Testament. And it says in verse 12, now not only one year out of seven was a rest. You know, not only that you got, so you got one year in every seventh. And then when you had a cycle of seven sevens, which was 49, you got to the year of Jubilee. And so you also got the 50th year off as a year of Jubilee. And then in the 50th year, all of the land and all of the property went back to its rightful owners. And in that, God laid out a plan so that there would be no um, commercialism that happens today. There would be no uh, monopolies where somebody would be able to. So if you had bad vestments and bad deals and you lost your land, you had to sell your land to survive and you made bad deals that in the year of Jubilee, it all went back to the rightful owners and everything reset every 50 years so that one person wouldn't end up owning everything. And then in verse 12, not only one year out of every seven, but he says, six days you shall do your work and on the seventh day you shall rest that your ox and your donkey may rest, that your son and your female servants and the strangers may be refreshed. So the, the interesting thing, you know, several times, even in the Ten Commandments, God, God mentions the animals. And, and he, he even says that not, so, you know, some of us might think, well, I don't need a rest. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the type of guy, I can go, 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 and I don't need a rest. I don't need to take a rest every seven days and, you know, or once every seven years. I just, I wouldn't know what to do. And, and, but, you know, one of the things is if you live that way and if you work that way, you have to understand that it doesn't just affect you, it affects people around you as well because then people around you have to work and people around you have to keep up with you. And so God, not only just for that person, but to protect the sons and the daughters and, and no doubt, you know, Lydia's dad, uh, for example, they, you know, when dad was working, they were working and he never took a day off. They literally, Pastor Gerald literally grew up believing that Labor Day was a day they gave you off school so you could pick rocks out of the fields. It wasn't until he was married and Cindy asked him on like their first year of married if they were going to have a barbecue and a party for Labor Day. And he's like, 
No, Labor Day is the day where you go, you go work the fields. You go pick rocks out of the field. She's like, what? No, Labor Day is a holiday. You get that day off. <laughs> he, he had no idea. But because of his dad's drive, it, it didn't just affect his dad. It affected his sons and his families. And Pastor Gerald had six brothers, no girls, all boys on the farm. And, um, and they, they, you know, his dad, his grandpa was a, um, you know, was a German descent. You know, he was the you will work and you will like it type, you know, and he was, he was, uh, he was an alcoholic his whole life. And, uh, uh, Gerald's, well, what is Gene? Gerald's the youngest. So Gerald, Gene is the second to the youngest, but Gene, when he was 18 years old, he had a choice, go to Vietnam or stay and work with dad on the farm. He went to Vietnam and that was, that was the, he did, Gene went to Vietnam instead, and another brother went to Haiti, and so they all disappeared, and then Pastor Gerald was the only, he was the youngest, and so the, other, the older six had already taken off, first chance they got, and so he was being groomed to take over the family farm when, when God called him. But the, the point here that God makes is that may, maybe you are a type that can handle that, but God's saying also the people around you need a rest, and the animals and he wanted to set it so that the donkeys and the ox and those that work the field, that they got a rest as well. So God cares about the animals. So you mean hunters, stop shooting them. Just kidding. Hopefully I'm going to shoot one next Friday. A big one. <laughs> if Trenton can guide my trip right, we'll get one. But if not, it's his. <laughs> uh, yeah. He's thinking, guide this guy. There's no hope. God could guide this guy to get one. All right, where are we at? Um, verse number 13 says, And in all that I have said to you, be circumspect and make no mention of the name of other gods, nor let it be heard from your mouths. And so, again, they were immersed in pagan cultures and pagan systems, and, and they were actually entering in or they were, you know, getting ready to enter into um, Canaan, where there was going to be tons of pagan practices and, and rituals that have been going on. And, and he said, don't even have mention of the other gods in your name. Don't even, don't even mention them. You know, in the New Testament, it says, whatever things are true, whatever things are right, whatever things are lovely, meditate on these things. And so God didn't even want them to mention or these names of these other gods to be heard from their mouths. In verse 14, it says, three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For, it, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty. So um, basically these are the, um, the three spring feasts. So unleavened bread and Passover are the first two that, that are mentioned here in these three feasts. And so unleavened bread is, is seven days of unleavened bread because when they left Egypt, they didn't have time to bake the bread. And so they were told to bring unleavened bread. And then unleavened bread is obviously is a picture of the body of Jesus Christ because leaven in the Bible is a type of sin. And so when we receive communion, we do it with unleavened bread because leaven in the Bible represents a type of sin and Jesus was without sin. And so for those that receive communion with leavened bread, I, is the, for the life of me, I can't figure that one out. But it's blasphemous because it's all the way through the scripture. So unleavened bread was a seven-day feast where you had unleavened bread. And then it would, it would culminate in Passover. And then, and then right after Passover, right, as soon as Passover ended, the very next day would be the, the feast of first fruits. And so these are the three spring fruit fe uh, feasts, which is like our March, April, coincides with our Easter. 
And so Jesus prophetically fulfilled the first three feasts. He, was, um, he, was di- he died and was, was offered up on unleavened bread. He died on Passover, and he rose again on first fruits. Fifty days later, um, there's seven major Jewish feasts. So we have the first three fulfilled in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Fifty days later is, is the next major Jewish feast in the calendar that God, God told them in the law to, to um, observe. You know what that one is? Fifty days later, Penta. Pentecost is 50 days later. That's where Peter and, and them were preaching and, and the Holy Spirit was sent to Jerusalem. And the, at the Feast of Pentecost was fulfilled in Acts chapter 1 and 2. And then we have the three fall feasts, which, which are um, yet future fulfillment of prophecy. The next one in the line is the Feast of Trumpets. And the Feast of Trumpets coincides with the rapture and then um, the millennial reign of Christ. Is in, in, and the seven-year tribulation, the millennial reign of Christ, and the fulfilling of the, the last two, because every, all seven of the Jewish feasts are, are a prophetic model that God has laid out. And he fulfilled the first four to the day on the second, the time that they were supposed to. So it's just kind of makes sense that the next three will also fall in line. The next three prophetic models of um, the, the fall feast will also happen that way. But if you play that out, you could say, well, then... If the Feast of Trumpets, which is the next one, four are already fulfilled, three are yet future, the three fall feasts, the Feast of Trumpets, the next major prophetic um, event is the rapture of the church. And so, you know, we believe that the, the rapture of the church will fall on the Feast of Trumpets. And you say, well, then, you know, I guess I, the, the Lord can't come unless it's... And, and the Feast of Trumpets falls in September, October. Two years ago, it was in September. This year, it was October 3rd. Um, well, then that's when the Lord's going to come. Then you know the day or the hour. But the Bible says no man knows the day or the hour. But not, not necessarily because I, I still believe that the Lord could come at any minute, any day. I'm always kind of ready around that time. But, um, but, but even in the Feast of Trumpets, it's interesting. The Feast of Trumpets is um, it, it's, it's the only feast of all seven that, that is not calculated specifically to a day and an hour. They even call it in, in a Jewish idiom, it's the feast that no man knows the day or the hour. Because um, it has to be confirmed by two separate priests with, with, the, full, with the, the crescent moon. And so the, the priest will put his thumb up and just depending on the shape of the moon and another priest has to confirm the same thing. If it's a cloudy night and, it's, and they can't confirm it, they won't declare it. But when two priests confirm it and they declare it, then at sunrise um, on the, the direction of the priests, then they blow the, the trumpets and that begins the Feast of Trumpets. And it changes. It varies a little bit here and there. So it's still the feast where no man knows the day or the hour. So God lays out here the first three. Um, and then in verse 16, it says, The Feast of Harvest, the first fruits of your labors, which you have sown in the fields, and the Feast of Ingathering at the end of the year when you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field. Hey, really quick, verse uh, 15. I left something out I want to talk about, and then we're going to talk about first fruits. In verse 15, what's the last part of it say? None shall appear before me empty. So I think this is so huge in church, you guys. And, and people often talk about what's wrong with the church today. Now, we can look at, at two aspects. You know, I think the, maybe in the leadership of the church, there's, there's issue. But as far as with the attendance and the people of the church, one of the things that happens in church that, that's devastating to church is that we've, and maybe more so here in America, but because of our 
entertainment aspect and lighting and all these things as we've gone and the music and these things that and then the dynamic preachers and you know where the preacher preaches well the churches are you know and what happens is we develop a christianity that's that's a bless me bless me bless me and the people come and the music better be right and i better play the songs i like and it better be in the right tone it better be fun the lighting better be perfect and that preacher better better bless me and you come to church with this bless me bless me bless me attitude but a healthy church, a good church for us especially, you know, is that when, when, when you come with the attitude to church and to give that, that this is a place where you come to offer something. What, what can I give? What, what, who can I serve? You know, I'm not coming here every Sunday so that, you know, you better bless me. And, and it happens so often. It's just, it's heartbreaking how many people come and get twisted over something that, you know, where they, they leave. And I, and I asked myself, what did, what did they do? Who did they help? Who did they serve? Where, where are they going? Like, if you gotta, you're going to go somewhere else because somebody made you mad, then, you know, but what, what did you do to serve? Where, and one day, here's the thing. One day, we're all going to stand before God, right? And you're going to go to God, and what are you going to say? Lord, that, that preacher, that worship leader, that usher, that person, that church, they did this. So I stopped going, and I stopped serving, and I don't do anything. The Lord's going to say, oh, you're right. They did you wrong. You get a pass. You don't have to serve me. You don't have to give of yourself. Like that person did you wrong, man. Poor you. You think that's how it's going to go down when you stand before God? So I'm not saying that churches won't do you wrong. Pastors won't do you wrong. Ministries won't do you wrong. Places won't do you wrong. But what I'm telling you is that is that you have, regardless, a responsibility to bring something to the feast. Every one of us. And God says, and, and Jesus taught this. He said, he said, we all have been given talents. And, and somebody said, well, I don't have a lot of talents. Well, you got 24 hours, same as I do. How are you going to use those 24 hours? How are you going to, what are you going to do to give, to serve? Because one day we're all going to stand before God. And, and, and it's okay. Like God grades on a curve. I hear that sometimes. The reality is that's kind of true. He says that, you know, that, that, that it's going to be based on faithfulness, not on whether you were Billy Graham and preached to millions of people or whether you held babies in the nursery faithfully. Your, your, your reward is not based on the level of, of, of how God used you. Your, your reward is based on faithfulness. And maybe God's only given you talents and a heart and a position to hold babies in the nursery. And, and you're going to have the same reward as Billy Graham if you do it faithfully as, as Billy Graham preached and millions of people got saved faithfully. But we have to bring something to the table. We have to come to God. We have to come to church. We have to come to community with the idea that um, I, I'm coming to bless other people. I'm coming to serve other people. And, and I'm coming, and I have needs, sure. We, we want to meet your needs, and other people want to help meet each other's needs. But all the more reason that, that you're a person that comes with needs, and, and the people, other people around you have needs. And so, you know, th- this is a principle that God laid out. It's, it's here in the law. It's repeated all the way through. It's a problem with the church today that we're developing Christians who, who have this bless me, bless me, bless me mentality and experience in church. And, and we'll grow as a people, we'll grow as individuals when, when we understand that what, 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 where can I give, where can I serve, how, what am I doing? When I stand before God one day, what am I going to offer him? Amen? All right. So then in verse um, 16, he talks about the, the uh, feast and to bring the first fruits of the labors. So um, in the area of tithing, tithing and, and, and it, biblically it's, it's a, it's a first fruit, okay? That's the principle that God lays out in giving. And, and if you're a farmer, one of the things you have to understand, like Pastor Gerald, again, you know, we got lots of farm stories by, from my pastor, you know, growing up. But um, it was true. W- he, he, multiple times growing up, 
they would have, they, the harvest would begin. And they would begin to, they would, they would cut a field and, you know, it takes a week and they're, they're working from sunup until mid, midnight every day cutting fields. And they may cut the first field and a hailstorm come and completely wipe out the rest of the crops. That's a, year's, that's a year's worth of wage and labor and work that they put into those crops. And they may have got one cut off of it. There's no guarantee they're going to get the next cut every day depending on what happens and whether multiple times they had a hailstorm come in in the last minute or whether thing come in and, and completely destroy the crops. And, and so when you have to give of your first fruits, you have to give by faith. And the biblical principle of giving to the Lord in tithes and offerings is, is, an, is, is a first fruits. So, you know, and, and you know what? The thing is, this is just the truth. God doesn't need any of your money. He really doesn't. He, he doesn't make it or break it on whether or not you give 10% or 2% or 20% or whatever. Has God's, God's God. He created the heavens and the earth and all that's in them. He, he paves the, the streets of heaven with gold. Does the Bible say like, I want to pave the streets of heaven with gold, so will you guys give? Like, does he need our tithe so that he can accomplish the, the paving project he's got going on in heaven? No, it's going to happen, right, whether you give or not. It, it, it's, it's not that God needs your money and that it, it's, a, it's a principle of faith. It's a principle of giving in faith. And, and in our gift, if you give whatever you give, if you give $100 and that's your tithe and, and you give it every week, and, and you wait until all the bills are paid and you have that last $100 left and then you give it. I, I'm going to tell you, get, it's, not, it's, it's a heart and it's faith that God's interested. He wants your heart in your life. There's no credit for it. But if you give it in the beginning, not knowing if you're going to make it to the end, now you've had to give of your first fruits. Now you've had to give in, in faith because you don't know if you're going to make it to the end of the month. You know when it really gets fun? is when you know at the beginning of the month you're already short to get all the way through and you give of your first fruits anyways. And, and that's the principle, the biblical pr- principle of, of tithing and of first fruits because it requires faith and it requires a sacrifice. And, and if, you, if you're in that habit of waiting and seeing if it's there, you're never going to get ahead. You're going to go around and around and around in circles. I, I tell the story, and it happened here in this church not that long ago, and just God orchestrated it. And, and it impacted me because three different people approached me um, in a very short amount of time, independent of each other. And, and two, don't, don't give or tithe or believe in the idea of, of investing in first fruits to the Lord. And two came up and told me these horrible financial woe stories of houses collapsing and cars and vehicles and hospital bills and crazy things. And I'm thinking, and I don't know, I'm not, not, not saying this is being dogmatic about this or saying this is the theology or anything. But in my personal life, I feel like God, God's going to get it. Maybe I had, I had $200 and, and I gave it sacrificially, not knowing and not, and I gave it to the Lord. And then my car that was going to need a $200 repair, God put a, could have fix, pick, fix on it. And I never knew that my car was there, but I saved that 200 bucks. And then the hot water or the, you know, water pump goes out in the truck and it cost me 200 bucks. And then there's kind of this economy that, that, that I give by faith and in tithing, because what happens in tithing is God's math doesn't match ours. God says that one will put to flight 100 and 10 will put to flight 10,000. So when God starts multiplying, the numbers don't add up. They, they don't, it's not math. It doesn't work. But in God's economy, something works. And when we give of our first fruits and we give in faith up front, then we, we, we just find that things work in the end. 
And I'll tell you, you get testimonies of people, and I'm sure people will share them, where, you know, I don't know, I'm just going to hang on to it so I can get ahead. I'm going to stop tithing for a little bit so I can get ahead. And what happens? What happens? We never give it, get ahead. We never get ahead. So as a pastor, what's the fear of, of, of preaching, tithing, and money that, that this becomes about me or our church? But, but I want to tell you, it has nothing to do with me or our church. We don't, one way or the other, this is just because it's, it's the truth. It's what the Word of God says. You know, we got Mark here for the first time today. He's like, oh, I knew it. I knew it, Brian. You took me to this church, and all I talk about is money. Every time I go to church, I talk about money. But that's where we are in the Scriptures. That's where the Scriptures dealing with it, and we, we talk about it when the Scripture brings it up. I don't know if that's you or not, Mark. I'm just teasing you. But, you know, that, that's the fear that we have. Somebody new comes, and... Um, but, but again, it's not for me. It's really not. I'm being honest. It has nothing to do with me. I don't make or break us or me. Um, this is God's church. This is God's economy. We've been beyond blessed here and have everything we need and more. It's a matter of, of you putting your faith and heart in God and giving. And again, it's got to be in the first fruits. If you want the credit and you're making it anyways, you're giving anyways, don't do the math and then decide what you're going to give. And this is what I always challenge people because if, if I give you a number... I guarantee you God's is going to be way higher. So this is what I always challenge people to be honest. So in the area of tithing and giving, this is what you do. You go and you spend time with the Lord and you ask God what he wants you to do. What his heart is, because people want to argue over whether a tithe is 10% or whether we're supposed to give 10. In the New Testament it says, let each one give as he purposes in his heart. And 10% is an Old Testament principle and whatever. I'm not going to split hairs with you on that. But here's what I will challenge you to do. Go ask God what he wants you to give in your life. And where he wants you to give it, how he wants you to give it. And then be obedient to what it is God tells you. Amen? Amen. In verse 17, it says, Three times a year, all of your males shall appear before the Lord, the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor shall eat the fat of my sacrifice remain until the morning. The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in his milk. So, verse 19 is the one I was just preaching on. I got ahead of myself a little bit. The, Verse 19 says, the first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord. So don't wait and make sure you get the rest of the crop. Bring the first in faith. And then he says, you shall not boil a, a young goat in its mother's milk. Um, so this is part of the dietary kosher laws you'll find in Israel. So Brian and Jessica, we just got back from Israel in April. And, and we learned very quickly that if you're eating anything in Israel, especially, you know, that it's kosher, you won't get meat and, and dairy products in the same meal. So in the morning, you'll usually have your dairy products. If you're going to have cheese or anything that's dairy, it's in the morning. And then at night, if, you're gonna, if they're going to serve meat, you're not going to get a cheeseburger in Israel. They actually put McDonald's a while ago. Years ago, they put McDonald's in Israel for the first time. And you couldn't go into McDonald's and get a cheeseburger. You get a hamburger, but not a cheeseburger um, because they don't mix meat and dairy products. It's one of the kosher laws. And it comes from this verse right here. This verse says that you should not, what does it say? Where are we at? In verse 19, the bottom part, not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. So the Jews say, lest you, you know, you, um, in your stomach, you have meat and, and cheese and it's turning and it's burning and you're boiling uh, a young goat in its mother's milk. And so that that doesn't happen, they even have, they go so as far as in Israel, true story, they'll have two kitchens. They have, they have a, a dairy kitchen and a meat kitchen. They won't use the same plates. They won't use the same ovens. They won't, just in case we have some kind of cross-contamination. And by chance, we violate this commandment and we boil a goat, a baby goat in its mother's milk or cow or anything else. 
So you remember where Jesus looked at the Pharisees and he says, you strain at the gnat and you swallow a camel. And so the Bible says you're not to eat anything with the blood. And so Jesus was, was telling a joke, really. But a Pharisee's having a conversation with his buddy and a little gnat flies into his mouth and he freaks out because he wants to be obedient to the law. And he, he does everything he can to choke out this gnat so he doesn't swallow it. And Jesus said, but yet in the meantime, you, 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 swallow, the, the, you swallow a camel. And, and so basically you minor in the, in the, you major in the minors and you make, you know, these, these big issues out of nothing. And you, you ignore, and Jesus said in another place, you ignore the weightier matters of the law. And so it's so it's so um, crazy, really, in Israel, how far they go to not mix dairy and meat products. And, you know, the interesting thing is that this is not even the heart of what God was intended here. This is not even what he was wasn't his intention. But that's that's what the law does. Right. That's what legalism does. And so in, in it, basically what happened and they found this in, in Syria in, in, in excavating and different things, they found a culture. And one of the pagan practices was it was a ritual for fertility. And they would take um, exactly that. They would take a goat and they would get the mother's milk of that goat. And they would boil the goat in the mother's milk. And it was a pagan practice of fertility. And so um, God says, don't do it because it's pagan. And the Jews have completely taken it and twisted it and swallowed a gnat and, or choked out a gnat and swallowed a camel and have missed the weightier matters of the law. And in verse 20, it says, Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you up in the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if you, if you indeed obey his voice, he shall do all that I speak to them, I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring into the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Termites and the Flashlights and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. Verse 20, let's go back to verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you. The word angel is a capitalized. Yes. Okay. To you in the way and bring you into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him. Is it capitalized? And obey his. Is that capitalized? Obey his, his, the his, his voice and do not provoke him. Capital for he, capital H, will pardon your transgressions for my name is in him. Now we're getting interesting. God says his name is in him. He's an angel with a capital. He's H-H-H capital. Whenever they speak of Jesus or God or the Holy Spirit, it's always capitalized when they use the pronouns there. And it says that he will not pardon your sins. Do angels pardon sins? Nowhere. Anywhere else in Scripture does God tell us that we're to uh, obey angels? No. So, So what does this mean and who is this here in the Old Testament? Is um, let, let me turn with me if you guys will. Let's go to Joshua chapter five. I want you to see this story. So Joshua chapter five and verse 13. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho. Jericho has such cool history, man. Too bad it's a, it's a Muslim stronghold right now. And not a fun place to visit, but I didn't think. 
And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked. And behold, a man stood opposite of him with his sword. You guys notice in the, the, the pronouns that are capitalized sword and in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversary? And he said, no. That's an interesting answer to that question. It's a kind of a multiple choice question. And he said, no, you asked the wrong question. As, as Jesus often would in the New Testament, when someone would ask him a question, he wouldn't even answer what they asked. He would answer what was on their heart and what really the, ma- the heart of the matter was because Jesus could see their heart and, and had compassion. And so he says, no, but I am a commander of the army of the Lord. I have as, excuse me, but, but as commander of the Lord's army, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? So he says, no, you've asked the wrong question. I'm the commander of the Lord's army. Joshua, you're not leading this battle. You don't fight this battle. I fight this battle. I lead this battle. And Joshua bowed down to him. You guys remember what happened in the New Testament in the book of Revelation when an angel appeared and John, the revelator, bowed down to the angel? He said, get up. I'm not God and only God should be worshiped. Don't worship me. I'm just an angel. And he commanded him to get up. Did this angel command Joshua to get up here? No, he's going to double down. Look what the angel says. Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals off of your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. And Joshua did so. The Lord told Moses at another time, Moses, remember Moses came to the burning bush and it was on fire. And the Lord said, Moses, take off your sandals for where you stand is holy ground. And so, so Joshua is bowing down here and worshiping the, the commander of the Lord's army, the angel, as it's described here in Joshua 5, the same way it's described in, in, in Exodus. And so this is none other than, none other than Jesus Christ. So we know that Jesus was born a little baby Jesus in a manger, right? But that wasn't the beginning of Jesus, a little baby Jesus. What was that guy who liked to pray to little baby Jesus? Anyways, I digress. We better move on. Um, that, that's not the beginning of, of Jesus in the manger. Jesus was and is Jesus. The Bible says that, that um, before the foundations of the earth, God laid out the plan of salvation that his son would die on a cross. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That word beginning is there is no beginning. It's as far back as, as, as a human mind can go that, that Jesus was there. And so, uh, you know, this concept that Jesus is, is New Testament only is, is false. We find this term all the way through the Old Testament. And when we do, we call it a, a, a theophany, an appearance of God in the Old Testament, or, or more, more specifically, a Christophany. A, Christ, a Christophany is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. What about Abraham? Abraham met an interesting fellow, and he, and he bowed down to him, and he paid tithes to him. And they broke bread together, bread and wine. A guy by the name of Melchizedek. Another Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ, a Christophany. And so here this angel that God is talking about in the law and Moses in Exodus, back to Exodus 23, is, is Jesus in the Old Testament. And, and we see it all the way through where Jesus is, is present in, in many places in the Old Testament. Amen? All righty. At verse 21, just just something that we should know 
um, in Isaiah chapter 9, and this is a scripture that um, we should all know. We should know where it is. We should have the reference. But God says, I will put my name in him. And, and the thing about Jesus is that um, God, he's called God an everlasting father. And in Isaiah chapter 9, it says, um, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. So it, it, it could not be any more clear than Isaiah 9, 6. Write that down, know that, have that, go to it, know it, so you can reference it. Isaiah 9, 6, unto us a child is born, a son is given. Any confusion about what Isaiah, who Isaiah is talking about? Child born, a son given. When did that happen in the Bible? Jesus. It's talking about Jesus. And then listen to what it says. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. Jesus is called Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order and establish it with judgment and justice. And so we have that God says he's going to put in him his name. And we find that all the way through the Old Testament. You know, the, the, the most important thing through all of eternity is to get right today is who is Jesus. And unfortunately, um, any cult ism schism anything that is that that john um in first john and second john calls an antichrist or against christ the 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 no matter what label they put it on anybody that's not under the banner of the bride of christ born again christian anything that's out there they all have this in common they diminish the role in the person of jesus christ and and, and you know what we, we you know my kids sometimes ask me well dad they you know, talking about different religious and groups. And they'll say, Dad, well, they, they believe in Jesus or they have Jesus or they believe, you know, they're good people. They, they give out free videos and stuff. And, you know, they're, well, aren't they going to heaven? Well, I don't know. I hope some of them. But, but, but the majority probably not if, 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 they, if they die because you, you have to have the right Jesus. It's just that is the key. That is going to be the most important thing through all in all of eternity. And you can't be off on that issue. You have to have the right Jesus. Just like, you know, I, I talk to some of my LDS friends sometimes, and just to tease them, I, to, to illustrate this, I'll tell them, oh, yeah, I believe in Joseph Smith. Wasn't he like that guy that walked around India with no shoes and, like, told, like, guru stories? And, like, no, that's not him. Well, that's the one I believe in. What does it matter? I believe in Joseph Smith. I'm good, right? The guy in India did all this stuff, had a dot on his forehead. And, that's Gandhi. No, 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 that's, that's Joseph Smith, a different one. I know Gandhi was. This is a different guy, but did kind of the same stuff. Like, to illustrate the point that it matters that we have the right, and you wouldn't respect my, if I came to you and said, oh, I, I believe the same way you do. I just got a different leader of, of, of our denomination. But So it's so important. It's everything who Jesus is. We got to have it right. And, and the bottom line is Jesus is God. We hammered this home through First John, and I should probably move on, but... Um, you know, it, it diminishes when we diminish the role of Jesus, that Jesus was not God. First of all, we make the father out to be this, you know, tyrant, because like we illustrated before, if Jesus wasn't God and God sent his son to die on a cross. Now, would any good father send their son out in front of him to die? You guys aren't sure you have a son. One of you has to die. You're going to send him out or you're going to go yourself. What does a good father do? He goes himself, right? 
So to, to say God pushed Jesus out in front of the train, but himself wouldn't jump in front of it, it makes God out to be a tyrant. It makes God out to be, it, it's blasphemous. Because if you diminish the role of Jesus Christ, but when you understand that God sent himself, because Jesus is God, and God came himself in the form of, of in the likeness of man in flesh and died on a cross for your sins and my sins, changes everything, game changer. And it's so important that we get that right. That, that Jesus is God and that God himself became a man and died on the cross for your sins. We're going to get a little bit more of this in 24. We are going to finish 24 in the next four minutes. And we're not even done with 23 yet. Man, I'm good. Just kidding. Um, verse 24 says, You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their works, but you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. You shall serve the Lord your God. He will bless your bread and bre- bless your bread and your water and will take sickness away from you in the midst of you. No one shall suffer a miscarriage or be barren in your land. How awesome would that be? I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion among the people to whom you come and will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, the Hittite from before you. And I will not drive them out from before you in one year. So this, what are these hornets? I I don't know that historically we ever have any proof that literal hornets came and drove out um, the people that were in the Holy Land. So basically what, what God promised to Abraham Isaac and Jacob, this, this holy land that was in the covenant, the promised land, as we call it, the area that God gave them was inhabited by all of these different people groups that I often mention. We, we normally call them the Canaanites, um, and it was Canaanite country. So you hear that term a lot. That's who was there when, when Israel came in. The Canaanites, the Hivites, like I talked about before, the termites and the flashlights and all those ites that were there in the land and god and 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 joshua when you read the book of joshua it's very violent as they crossed over the jordan they went in they had to possess those lands and they had to take and they had to fight and god gave them those lands and and long story i'm not going to go backwards we've been into it that god worked with those people for 400 years and they they were cancerous and they were society that were were, were in bad shape and and so but the land that god promised his people was three hundred thousand. um square miles or acres, which is it? Um, they, they never possessed n- nowhere near that. At their height, they possessed 10% of what God promised. So King David, and then again, under King Solomon, they, they had possessed, today it's less than that, um, 10% of the 300,000 acres that God, or square miles, I think it is, that God had promised the, the nation of Israel as their inheritance Never, never, ever took that land. And, um, and God said here he was going to send the hornets in. So whether that's kind of an idiom for foreign raiders or foreign armies or other people that God was going to bring something in the form of a hornet, literal bees or foreign armies that were going to help fight for them. And in verse 27, it, or verse 28, it says, or 29, I will not drive them out from before you in one year. So just, just an interesting little side note here that you know, we want everything and we want it now, right? Hey, I've been coming to church like three times. Like, I want to I walk on water. You know, I want to I lay hands on people and see them shake and fall over. You know, or, or I want this victory. Or I want this thing and this thing. And, and, and so God here lays out a principle that he's going to give them victory, but it's going to take time. It's not going to happen in one year. 
He says, I want you to understand, it's not going to happen overnight. You're going to sow seeds, you're going to plant, you're going to work, and over a process of time, and, and that's just a lesson for our Christianity today, that God is doing something in your life. God is working. You know, but, but God is, it, it oftentimes takes time and planting and sowing. And our life is, is compared very closely to a garden. And, and you want to grow fruit, you want to grow trees, that doesn't happen overnight. You know, a farmer tills the land for six months before he even puts the first seed in the ground. And then he begins the process of watering and weeding and taking care of and growing. And eventually there's a crop, and that's what happens in our lives. And that's the way God warned the nation of Israel that, hey, I'm going to do all these things, but they're going to come in seasons, and it's not going to happen overnight. Lest the land becomes desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. The reason God wasn't going to do it overnight is because the people couldn't handle it. God, God, God maybe has a blessing for you. Maybe God has something he wants to give you, but you're not ready for it yet. And if he gives it to you, it's going to destroy you. And he's holding back that blessing until you're ready. You know, I have the kids in the, you know, sometimes they say, oh, man, I want to, in the Bible college, I want a wife. I want her to be so spiritual and so beautiful and smart and funny. And I just want a perfect angel for a wife. And I have to tell them, well, sorry, I already got her. No, I'm just kidding. Well, well, God's going to have to do some work on you then to get you ready because that's a tall order. And God might have that woman, but if he introduces you to her today, there's no chance. You know, and, and there's a process that God, oftentimes it's because what's happened in our heart. I can remember when I was, a, when I was an intern on the, on, the, on the board for the church. And one of the first meetings that I, I, I sat in, they asked me if I would open the meeting in prayer. And there was a, a process that, that we, were, we were seeking God for and a thing that we wanted to step out in. And I just remember the Holy Spirit really led and directed that prayer. And, and I, I can remember praying that the men in this room, that, that God would change and work on our hearts because we were wanting to step out and do something. And, and maybe the issue wasn't the factors of, of what we needed, the money or the things to happen in order to step out in this new venture in ministry. But the real issue was the, the men that were going to lead in this room that our hearts weren't ready. And that, that, that maybe it was sin or maybe it was just something that was holding us back and that God would work in our hearts and prepare us so that we could receive this blessing. And that's what he told the nation of Israel. I can't drive them out overnight because if I do that, then, you know, the land's going to go desolate. All right, we won't finish 24 tonight, guys. Don't, don't panic. I'm not going to get through it. It's only 18 verses. I'm going to try to jam, but we're, we're out of time. So let's just wrap up 23. We'll start in 24 next week. Some good stuff in 24. In verse 31, it says, and I will set your bounds from the Red Sea to sea. And those are the, those are the boundaries that God laid out, the 300,000 square miles. Philistia and from the desert to the river, for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them or with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. This was a problem for Israel throughout all of their history is going back to and serving the pagan gods of these nations and these countries. God said, don't make a covenant with them. Don't let them dwell within your, within your midst. Don't keep them in. You get rid of them. They're gone. They got to go. Their false gods got to go. And, and this commandment here, though it's it short, it, it was important and the people received it. And, and there's, a, there's a story in Joshua, at the end of Joshua and his conquest, there was a group of people and they, they tricked Joshua and his people. And they were just over the hill and they were staying in the land of Israel in the, in, the, in the area. And they came 
and they put dust all over their heads and their, their clothes and their, their donkeys and they tore their sandals up and they, they came over the hill into where Joshua and the people were and they, they said, we've come from a far country and we've heard of your conquest and will, will you guys make a deal with us that you won't invade us and you won't leave us alone or that you will leave us alone? And, and so Joshua and the people, they didn't seek the Lord. They didn't ask God's wisdom and they made a contract and a pact with these people that they wouldn't harm them and, and wouldn't invade them. And it was a mistake and it hurt them and it was a problem, but it was disobedient to this commandment that's given here that we'll run into when we get to the end of Joshua. Amen. Don't you guys love the law? The law of Moses is good stuff. Let's stand. Father God, we come before you and we thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for the law. And and Lord, we thank you, God, just to be able to study, Lord, some places that maybe so many churches and so many places would would just overlook or just say that it's it's too laborious, it's not important, it's not relevant for us today. And yet, Lord, it's all of those things because it's the word of God. It's powerful. It's applicable to our lives today. Thank you for just having fun studying through uh, the law of Moses and the Old Testament and Lord, that, that we as your people, we, we should have a healthy knowledge of the Old and the New Testament alike. And so, Lord, we, we pray for each one who's here tonight, Lord, and um, pray, God, that you just bless them today and, and work in their hearts and lives. And, Lord, cause us just to grow in you. And, and, and Lord, that it's not going to happen overnight, that it's, it's step by step, that, that you lead us and that we will learn to walk in your ways. And so, God, help us to grow fruit in our gardens. And, and Lord, help us to be patient and continue to till, continue to work, continue to water, continue to weed, continue to pray and seek your face for personal growth in each one of our lives. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.